Welcome to Crazy Town. I'm producer Melody Travers. In this bonus episode, Ashera speaks with environmental journalist Amy Westerfeld about patriarchy and the cultural roots of the climate crisis. Thanks for tuning in. If you want others to get the Crazy Town experience, please hit the share episode button and send it to your community or drop us five stars. Now to the show. Amy Westerveld is an award-winning print and audio journalist, an author and a podcaster who has done amazing reporting and storytelling on the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry, and the energy transition. She's the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network and has executive produced more than a dozen podcasts, including her own show, Drilled, which I highly recommend that you check out if you haven't already. Amy, welcome to Crazy Town. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I wanted to talk with you just briefly about the deep roots of the climate and sustainability crisis. You partnered with uh, with a podcast called Seen on Radio, which is one of my absolute favorites. We've actually um, encouraged folks in the past to listen to the Seeing White series in particular. Yeah. And you worked with them on a series called The Repair, which explores the cultural roots of the climate crisis and the deep changes that, that we in Western society will need to make. Can you just talk a little about like the impetus for that project and, and the general arc of the season? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, yes, Seen on Radio was one of my favorite podcasts long before I ever got the opportunity to work with them. So I, I was like a total fangirl when John Buin initially yeah. reached out to me. <laughs> I was like, I don't blame me? you want me? <laughs> um, but he wanted to do a season on the historical roots of the climate crisis. And he particularly wanted to do it on the back of these three previous seasons that they had just done, which were unpacking, you know, sort of the roots of racism and, you know, sort of the creation of race in general, and then patriarchy, and then democracy and sort of why no one's actually been able to pull off a full democracy yet and why, you know, America hasn't necessarily delivered on the promises in some of its founding documents. So he felt like that was a good foundation from which to start talking about the climate crisis, which I I really strongly agree with. (laughs) So that's kind of where we started was looking at, okay, what are the root causes of this crisis? How do you get a crisis that impacts everyone, but is is being kind of managed by a small group of people making these big decisions? How do you end up with a situation like that, where just a small group of people has so much power to, to sort of dictate how the entire planet is going to move forward? Yeah. Were there any things that really surprised you in the course of, of doing the season? You know what actually totally surprised me? And it it seems so silly now, but there was this moment where John was interviewing this economist in Europe, Christian Felber, and he was interviewing him about economic systems and what needs to change. And, you know, I think John might have even gone into that interview thinking that, you know, that. Christian was going to be super anti-capitalism, but he was like, um, no, like you can have capitalism if you want. Like there's nothing in, there's nothing that says that the core value in capitalism has to be 
extraction, actually. Like you could have a capitalist marketplace that values well-being and the viability of life on earth. <laughs> you know, we we just don't do it that way. And it was I, I thought it was it was like a oh yeah, that's true. Like I think there are there are these understandings that we have that feel really immutable and and it's great to um have those moments where someone just says something that makes you sort of cock your head and go oh yeah that was just like one person's idea of this system we don't have to do it that way yeah i suppose that, that that's true that where there is debate about the form of the economic system you have people challenging the capitalist model certainly the capitalist model that we have but you also have economists in particular you know, those that are, are steeped in kind of the traditional study of economics who also define capital mm-hmm. and capitalism in the same way, right? Right. So I guess you're talking about maybe like a, an in-between a bit. Right. Or just, you know, um, I think I think Felber's point was like, no matter what system you choose, you have to rethink what you're going to value in that system. And right now, None of the systems that we have, none of the economic systems that we have do a particularly good job of valuing the things that we need to, you know, make human life work on earth for a long period of time. So so he was kind of encouraging people to not get so trapped into the, you know, capitalism or socialism kind of dichotomy and think more about what would it look like if we rethought what we value in an economy to begin with. And then the system matters a little bit less. Yeah. It it does seem like we're, we're seeing more of a shift. I mean, that the idea of, of measuring different things Mm -hmm. has been around for a while, but but quite marginal. It does seem that it's become more of a question. Yeah. Well, so in crazy town, we spent a lot of time lamenting how, I mean, part of the reason we called it crazy town was just that, a lot of the way that we live, and by we, I should be clear, right? Those of us in, in quote-unquote advanced economies, mm. primarily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we live really is crazy. Right. And it's constantly being reinforced. You know, we, right. we have to participate or kind of completely check out. In this season of the podcast, we're, we're exploring unknown or underappreciated moments in human history that we sort of see as watershed mm. that kind of helped us drive to the craziness that we're in. Some of them are, are you know, can be sort of silly, but are emblematic mm-hmm. of, of kind of the world that, that we built. You know, my view for a long time, having done, done this work for, you know, over a decade now, really particularly looking at, at the energy part of the picture, was that the sustainability crisis sort of the source of it was the advent of the fossil fuel age mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. which was like winning the energy lottery and we went crazy for a while like sometimes lottery winners do right i've been on my own journey i think over recent years trying to dig more deeply and seeing for example that colonization has played a really big role prior to the fossil fuel age you know there there are certain belief systems economic systems ways of being particularly coming from europe that pre-existed fossil fuels and fossil fuels in a sense sort of like supercharged those. Mm-hmm. But trying to dig further and further back, you know, people have talked about other energy transitions, moving from hunter-gatherers to, to agriculture, for example. Right. My friend Sherry Mitchell points to the commodification of brides. 
mm. as one of the earliest forms of like exploitation. When you think about it, and, and, and you, you know, you talked about this quite a bit, sort of the exploitation of people and the planet. Right. And she points to that. Right. It's like if you can look at people as a resource that you can extract and commodify, which happens, yes, in the case of women with brides, in the case of all kinds of people, and then eventually only African people with the slave trade. But even before the North Atlantic slave trade, you have a slave trade that goes back a long way. So I think, I don't know, the the idea of human beings as commodities. I don't know. I think if you can, if you can get to that, then you can um, have a, a pretty extractive approach to every aspect of your life, I guess. Yeah. And, and I know they did a whole season on patriarchy, but I was, I wanted to talk to you because you talk, you touch base on this a little bit in a conversation you had with, with John on, it might've even been the first episode of, of your series talking about patriarchy mm-hmm. and sort of how it relates and and specifically looking at the 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 ecological crisis that we're in just curious of like how you how you would connect those two things and and um and that history a little bit and how that that shaped where we are now yeah i mean i think i think there's a way that the the sort of commodification and and dehumanization of women really ties into how humans were evolving to see nature in general at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like I, you were talking about sort of watershed moments. The thing that I think about a lot is the shift from a sort of natural view of the world to a mechanistic view where mm-hmm everything from, you know, water and oil to people are kind of cogs in the machine, right? (laughs) Like that view of, of the world and how it works is really key to the enlightenment. So like that goes in some positive directions and, and, you know, like I'm not at all arguing that organized religion has been good to women (laughs) for for much of the, (laughs) the course of human history, but this mechanistic view adds this whole layer to it of, oh, I can just sort of swap in these things that I need to get to where I, I need to go. And I think that that really sets us on this course of thinking about people and natural resources as sort of inputs and outputs and and losing the the sort of sense of web of, of life that existed before, before that. And I, you know, I, I, I get like sort of hesitant talking about this stuff because I don't at all want people to think that I'm, you know, anti-science or, you know, (laughs) any of these things. But I do think that that shift in perspective really triggers a whole bunch of other things that you, you wouldn't necessarily associate with, Oh, the scientific method and, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like even the the bulk of our laws today are very much derived from this mechanistic view of the world. So, you know, when you get into environmental law, for example, it's very much about resources as commodities. And, you know, even natural resource management is mostly done with this view of how do we 
manage this resource so that it continues to benefit the economy, that it continues to benefit humans versus how do we kind of live in harmony with this ecosystem (laughs) that we are a part of and connected to? Yeah, you know, on the topic of the enlightenment and science, the the role that science has played, science was used, quote unquote, science was used to justify belief systems that preexisted it. So we're talking about race, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of, of racial distinction was really propelled by the Catholic Church. And so it had a, in some ways a religious basis, but it's not like when, when science took over in a sense, it, it did away with that belief system. Right. But science gave it a sort of like extra layer of legitimacy. When you look at that time period, there were really well-respected, very powerful philosophers and writers who were absolutely more progressive than the most mm-hmm. left person you will meet today. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, But there were also people who went, oh, perfect. Now we can categorize people in this way that seems very divorced from feelings or emotions or opinions or, or ego or anything like that. We can just, you know, say it's, it's sort of this dry, pragmatic approach, um, which became really dangerous. You know, taking it further back, you talked about the shift in terms of the the belief system of our relationship with nature, the sort of animistic view mm-hmm. into... Animistic, that's, what I, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yes. to, to <laughs> yeah. one that's like, um, I, I don't know if, how familiar you are with Marvin Harris. We, we talk about him maybe too much <laughs> on this podcast because uh, there's this theory of cultural materialism, which, mm. which argues that it's actually changes in our relationship to what he called infrastructure. And that is not like roads and bridges. It's it's energy, the natural environment, how we relate with it. Mm-hmm. It's changes in those things that lead to changes in kind of like our political systems, you know, how we operate with one another and also our belief systems. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of compelling to think. And, and I, I think history is much more messy and muddy than this, but you know, a shift to agriculture, people have argued, leads us to look to the sky mm. for rain and sun in a belief in sky gods versus seeing that every rock, every plant, every being is somehow codependent in a sense on each other. And right. and I just, yeah, curious if 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 you share sort of the, the view that one thing can lead to also then thinking like, well, especially when you create hierarchies in, in societies and more complex societies, you know, that that now women are viewed as subordinate to men and then other mm-hmm. humans are sub- subordinate to other humans. Yeah, just curious what, what your take on that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super interesting. And I think there's a ton of evidence for that throughout history. You know, when you get to, to agriculture, for example, not only are people looking to the sky for sky gods and things like that, but also labor becomes much more important, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. you you have both the domination of women who are now conscribed to pumping out more workers and soldiers, and you have a, a clear incentive for slavery, I mean, I know John has gotten into this in in great detail in in some of the previous seasons of of seeing white, but that you know the greatest driver for racism 
and slavery in the U.S. was just the need for more agricultural labor and Mm -hmm. the need for agricultural labor that couldn't leave and that wouldn't be too expensive. (laughs) So I think, I mean, that to me is the the thing that I, I kind of obsess about the most on the climate question is just that like, all of all of these things are so entwined and and therefore when people look at the climate question and they think oh we just need to replace this one energy source with this other energy source i think we run the risk of really perpetuating false solutions and just continuing on the same path in a way that might have some positive impact on this one issue of emissions, but will create a whole other barrel of of issues down the road. Like I, I really think that, I don't know, we almost, we almost need like another, another enlightenment where people really grapple Mm. with thinking through what we value as a society really rethinking the social contract and I don't know, just how we want to live on a, on a much broader scale than just do we want to use batteries or do we want to use oil? Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, there's, there's even questions about how sustainable that, that is. Yeah. Um, Certainly on the trajectory of growth that we've been on. And especially if we think about addressing the inequality issues in the world and in this country. Yeah. You know, the idea that those of us who have been privileged and benefited from this extractive, exploitative economic system wouldn't have to change what we do in order for others to also benefit. (laughs) Right. Right. Seems a bit delusional. It's totally delusional. It's totally delusional. I feel like there's a real blocker in people's minds where... The, the word privilege has become very triggering for people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially in America, right? Where everything is supposedly a meritocracy. How dare you accuse me of not having earned and not being deserving of everything I have, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's not what it's about. Like in general, across the board, Americans have benefited from fossil fuel extraction, but there's still enormous disparities just within our own borders, never mind the fact that the U.S. is the largest contributor to historical emissions, which means that we are 100% the big driver of the climate crisis. (laughs) So I don't know. I just, it's weird. I I feel like the way that that, um, it gets talked about a lot too is very like, guilt and punishment and sacrifice and all of this kind of thing. And it could be responsibility and strength and moral fortitude, you know, and like, and, and those things aren't even separate from the dominant religions in the world. Every religion has some aspect to it that encourages people to care about their community and and to to care about the common good and and all of that kind of thing. So I don't know. I I feel like in the U.S. in particular, my biggest I guess underlying belief for for everything that I kind of look at is that the intense obsession with individualism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. underpins all of this stuff. Every single problem I've ever looked into 
eventually gets back to that. And I think that that is a big fundamental societal shift that we need to to make if we hope to to deal with any of the big problems that are facing us. Because no matter what, we are locked into a certain amount of warming and we're already seeing the impacts of that. And when big extreme weather events happen, like fires that you and I have both dealt with, or, you know, the hurricanes or floods or whatever, you need that community fabric to be strong. And we don't have that at all in this country. It's unnatural that constant pushing for individualism is is not how we evolved as a species. We are a social species. And I think we've disconnected people from that in order to participate in a transactional economy and replace sort of meaning of relationships with things. Mm -hmm. And it, and I think it also just feeds that, that sort of emptiness that that people have. It's interesting though, you talked to John a little bit about the shift that also happened millennia ago around thinking that life was fated and, and preordained to feeling like people mm. had agency of some kind. And, and that in a sense allowed people to feel like they could exploit. There's a lot of freedom that came with that. Yeah. But, but then there's like a freedom to exploit as well. Yes. And, and it's not like I think you or I would argue that our belief system should be that our entire lives are fated or preordained from before birth or no. something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not arguing for return to the dark ages. But I, I'm just like, surely there's a happy medium here. I mean, I think you see that in, in the the social contracts of some other countries where there is a certain amount of personal freedom and the ability for people who have some extraordinary skill or talent to to benefit from that or whatever, but also a general sense that you have to give up a tiny bit of that to get the benefit of a healthy and sustainable community, which is the entire basis of any social contract and is actually like the basis of most of the philosophers that even like mm-hmm. libertarian thinkers in the U.S. <laughs> point to, I I get really annoyed because I I see people kind of quoting you know all of the Enlightenment philosophers really out of context a lot. But sure, even if you go back to you know the way that property was first conceived, which I think is another really really big turning point, <laughs> you know, yeah, how property was defined. In general, but then particularly how the U.S. decided to define it. But in England and Western Europe, when they first started talking about private property, it was always with the caveat that you had to leave as much or more at a similar or or better quality of land to the commons. Yeah, there was always that balance, and it's it's a uniquely American idea to chuck that balance out the window. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're teasing an upcoming episode that we have on the commons. Oh, are you doing one on on property? Yeah, because you're right. It's I think that shift has been profound, extremely profound, and the way that America, in particular took some of the things that John Locke was saying, which is basically that land only has value once humans put labor into it, right? The idea that it's pretty much only like agriculture and extraction that give land value. 
that gets really baked into U.S. property law, right, from jump. As does, like, we we are the ones that got rid of the idea that, like, water and minerals and things like that remain the property of the government or the, the public or the commons or whatever. And that creates so many big issues, right? Because if you look at, okay, well, I want to drill a well on my land for gas or oil, and then I can profit from that while also ruining a water source, you know, it becomes really complicated really quickly. But I mean, that's also what fuels the oil boom is that you have all of these independent wildcatters that can grab a, a tiny bit of land and try to get rich. It also like really, really ties into the whole American individualism thing too. I don't know. You see this in the in the sort of early 1900s of just like all these things colliding at once. Yeah. And then the incentive structure to focus on the near term. That's right. Over the long term. Um, I want to leave it on a really tough question for you. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to apologize. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) We talked a little bit about how it's necessary when you see the climate crisis as in effect a, a symptom, a symptom that could, could do us in, Right. you know, if we're honest, but a symptom of these larger system dynamics and, and really comes down in some ways to cultural norms and belief systems. So recognizing that that's what's sort of required, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you mean, you've, you've done all this reporting, you study it, I'm sure exhaustively, the nature of the climate crisis, the emergency that we're in is so dire and right. requires this dramatic near-term response. So how do you kind of square those things, you know, the the need for this urgent immediate response and a cultural Mm -hmm. shift that that frankly is going to be generational? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we need to to walk and chew gum, you know, it's not like anyone is suggesting that we not do, you know, short term things to try to you know, save as many people and places as possible, you know, while we think about these other things. But my my kind of answer to that is that we've essentially spent the last 30 to 40 years ignoring the big cultural drivers altogether. And mm-hmm. that hasn't worked either. <laughs> you know? I agree. I so, completely agree. Yeah. So I think this whole idea, and I find this to be really perplexing about the climate movement, that there is this constant debate about whether we should focus on energy or on culture. And it's like, yeah, both. Mm -hmm. We need to do both. And unfortunately, that means that we will probably have quite a few of what the IPCC was calling in their report today, maladaptation (laughs) efforts, where something is ostensibly done to address climate change and winds up worsening the problem or creating new problems. We're going to continue to have that problem until we solve for the cultural problem. But I think the solution can't be everybody stop what you're doing on climate until we figure out how we want to function as a society, because that's just just not an option available to us right now. Yeah, I do think we're seeing progress on a certain level in terms of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Certainly, we're seeing it in terms of climate justice. Yes. I think you can go broader and broader. That takes profound education and, and asking people 
deep questions and, and going back into history a little bit to understand why we got here, which is why I appreciate so much the work that you've done, the the season you did with Seen on Radio, the, the broader work that they've done is, I think, without understanding how we got here, it's really hard to know where to go in the future. Totally. And we have to, to realize that the vast majority of people don't have the time and energy to learn and read and think about these things because they're so busy just surviving because we live in this very extractive society, you know? So that's where I get really annoyed when I, when I see people who do have the time and the relative privilege to be able to do that, being really obstinate about refusing to do it (laughs) because it's, it's going to require those of us who do have the time to kind of look at this stuff and and try to share it in a way that is is accessible to to people because yeah people have bills to pay and are struggling to just put food on the table which doesn't like i don't want that to sound patronizing cuz i really hate it when people say things like oh well the poor don't have time to think about these every human being thinks about these things it's just that some of us have the luxury of time to really dig into it and not all of us do so i i think um i think that it really is a responsibility for those of us who do have the time to really grapple with this stuff and and try to to push that conversation forward as much as we can. But I agree with you. I mean, the the climate movement just in the last 10 years has become noticeably more intersectional. And I think that we're seeing benefits from that in the form of better solutions and policies. Because I also reject the idea that checkbox diversity is helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Like the reason to have a diverse set of opinions in your group is that you get to better solutions that way. That's it. It's not, it's not so that you can have a great multi-culti picture on your brochure. (laughs) It's it's because that's how you get to better solutions. And I, I do, I do think that we are starting to to see that. Like I see some people maybe still having some growing pains with that and feeling like there are all these new discussions they're being forced to have and we're taking our eyes off of the goal of energy transition or whatever. But I think overall it's it's a net good and it's a noticeable shift and a positive one. Yeah. I think you're right. The 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 folks who who get to listen to our podcasts, your podcasts are are ones who at least have the privilege of time yeah. and, and the capacity to do it. And so I would say it's incumbent on on us and on them to dig deeper to understand the roots of, of the climate crisis and the other issues that we face and and maybe be on the vanguard of thinking about systemic solutions yeah. and really learning from, from others, not in a patronizing way, but really learning from communities who have been living in a different way. Yes. I mean, you mentioned Sherry Mitchell before, who's brilliant on this stuff. And there are several and you're finally starting to see the international climate organizations embracing indigenous communities and indigenous approaches to things. I would like to see that happen in a more real way, less of a tokenizing way, starting maybe with land back. Uh, 
<laughs> but yes, put your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, okay, if you're going to name the stolen land that you're on, then you need to make the next step and think about returning that land. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, I keep seeing I keep seeing that in all kinds of climate things where people will kind of have a ceremonial acknowledgement of the yeah. land that they're on, which is great. But then, yeah, okay, why can't we have the conversation about the next step from there? <laughs> um, but yeah, I do think that that learning from Indigenous communities and even learning from, you know, I, I also co-host a, a podcast called Hot Take with Mary Anais Hegler, who's a great writer and thinker on climate justice issues. And she constantly reminds me of parallels between the climate movement and the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. how when people ask her, how do you like keep going, even though it's so depressing and all that stuff? She's like, well, you know, I come from a long line of of civil rights activists and there, there weren't a lot of wins in that place for a long time. You know? mm-hmm. So, so yeah, like learning from the resiliency of other movements and other people who have tried to work on, on these big generational shifts in thinking too, I think is important. Yeah. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. I can't stress yeah. enough or encourage people enough to check out the repair on seen on radio and and also all all the other great podcasts you guys have at the critical frequency podcast network thanks so much amy i really appreciate it thank you that's our show thanks for joining us in crazy town this is a program of post carbon institute get more info at postcarbon.org